Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Greetings, Aaron. Evan, you look like you went on a bender last night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, how do I say this? You you look terrible. Sadly, that's not even true. Um, Aaron, you look great. Who's, uh, who's on the show this week? On the show this week, two repeat guests joining forces for a joint episode. Uh, you may remember from this very program, Casey Newton and Kevin Roos. Casey, of course, runs the Platformer uh, newsletter. Kevin is a technology columnist for the New York Times, and together they do the podcast Hard Fork, which the New York Times also puts out. I've been a fan of both of their writings for, it feels like, going on a decade. I kind of want to talk to them about like what happens when you take careers that were forged in various kinds of writing and pour it into a podcast with another person who's been doing this for a long time. Also, some of the like kind of nuts and bolts stuff of doing a podcast that comes out at a weekly cadence about events that are unfolding very quickly and go stale very quickly. And also some of the balance between like recapping what happened for people and commenting about what happened. All topics I'm interested in. Great conversation. I'm excited for this one because I've enjoyed that podcast when I've listened to it. And also I've thought to myself while listening to it, man, I kind of wish Aaron was on this podcast. There's a big reveal about what the original concept for the show was that you will find entertaining. I won't I won't spoil it for the listeners. You're going to have to listen to get to that donut later in the episode. Our show is brought to you in partnership with Vox, and we thank them. And now here's Aaron with Casey Newton and Kevin Roos. Welcome back to the podcast, Casey Newton and Kevin Roos. Hey, Aaron. Thanks so much for having us. I didn't look up how long it's been since you've each been on the podcast, but it's definitely been a while, like close to a decade maybe for Kevin. And the great thing is that you've both been on this podcast before. We don't have to talk about like where you grew up and stuff like that. We can just talk purely about podcasting because since the last time you were both on this show, Casey, were you at buzzfeed at that time i'm trying to think i was at the verge i think it was 2019 yeah 2019 okay i apologize the verge kevin i think you had like a book out subsequent to that you came together to form a tech coverage super group i i call it krcn but people <laughs> maybe know it as the hard fork podcast put out by the new york times and I want to talk about that because I don't I don't think either of you were podcasting back in the day. Actually, the long form podcast was one of the first podcasts I ever went on back in, I think, like, yeah, probably 2014 or so. Yes. And um, at the time, there just like weren't a lot of podcasts. 
and I was very nervous. So you were very kind and I, I enjoyed the experience and I credit that experience with everything that's happened to me since. Well, I've always said one of the best podcast strategies is to do a podcast before other people are doing podcasts. <laughs> and that does not, not helpful advice anymore. But you guys started a podcast when podcasts were already in full tilt in a niche that I would say is ground zero for take-based podcasting, which is the technology industries. So I guess my first question is, you're both deep in the tech world. You know, uh, Kevin is a um, columnist of the New York Times. Casey has Platformer, a newsletter that I read very religiously. So you're already kind of like marinating in the juice of these stories. When you come together and are going to do the show for that week, how do you process all that raw material into your format? So basically every week we have usually three stories that we're talking about. And, um, you know, we, we try not to plan too far ahead. You know, I've found with other podcasts that I've worked on that there's like a, a sort of advanced planning process that means that it's actually hard to be responsive to like that day's news or that week's news. And so basically every Monday we wake up and we look around and we say like, what is happening this week? And like, what are the big storylines going to be in tech? And, you know, what do we have feelings about? Like, what do we feel like we could talk about for 10 or 15 minutes? And that kind of becomes the basis for our planning meetings, which happen on Tuesdays. And then we, we record the show on Wednesdays. In addition to that, we're also just sort of playing around with doing more remote segments, like where we take little field trips, you know, like this week we went to Google's robotics lab and it almost felt like we were doing like a Conan O'Brien segment, you know, we're just sort of like walking around, goofing around. So new stories, but then there's like a feature story at the end, you know, like almost like a magazine, but you know, we're also still playing around with the format and it's evolving. I feel like I know both of your personalities pretty well, and I don't imagine you like fighting with each other very much or disagreeing with each other. But I think when you look at sort of the origins of the two people and a list of news items, a lot of the juice from that comes from the friction and the conflict. Like, how do you find ways to not just be like, you are so right, Kevin? <laughs> that, that's one of the things that we we try to find is like a healthy sense of tension. By the way, the question that we get asked the most about the podcast is like, do you guys actually like each other? Which like <laughs> the answer to that is yes. We are yeah. friends. But like the frequency with which it is asked makes me think that there's just a universe of like jovial podcast hosts out there who just absolutely hate each other. And that that's why people ask. Well, that is the sports radio model. Like it's always incredible to find out like the people who did like a ESPN show for 11 years and never spoke to each other off air <laughs> and both tried to get each other fired off the show. That's usually what you hear from the oral histories of like longstanding audio partnerships. Right. So we're not that, but we do try to like identify stories where we don't have exactly the same take because that just makes the show more interesting. So like this week we had a story about this world coin project, these like, iris scanning orbs that sam altman is backing and is like gonna try to give everyone in the world like a unique cryptographic signature and like i thought it was kind of an interesting idea casey thought it was a terrible idea and so we like had that out on the show and i think it turned out well i mean the way i think about it is like when we were talking about wanting to do a show together we kept coming back to the idea of reporters at a bar because one of the most fun people you can talk to is a reporter at a bar and the reason is reporters are always hearing things that they cannot use in their stories because they only have one source or it's third hand but they think it's kind of true and so if you talk to a reporter at a bar you're just going to hear some of that and it's fun and kevin and i had this sort of relationship where we were always having those kinds of catch-ups and we want to translate that into the show so for me it was less important that we feel like there's the like creative tension between us and more like this is fun to listen to at the end of the week because these two guys are emptying their notebooks and they're telling you what they found out during the week. One of the things I noticed, so like I'm using that WorldCoin segment as a example, I think the first people who really I noticed using this were like the reply all team where basically one person explains it to the other person. And 
when you were doing world coin, I was like, this one's kind of a high degree of difficulty, like fitting the concept of world coin into like two minutes off the cuff is it's like, well, there's some iris scanning, but it's actually more about the universal basic income. So like when you're sort of recapping, are you recapping to get the audience with you? Are you doing it to set up the other person? How do you, I guess, think in the larger sense about the balance between telling people what happened and commenting on what happened? I mean, like going back to my reporters at the bar example, we also think about there's a third person at the bar and it's the person listening to us. And we do assume that that person cares about tech and knows tech things, but they haven't read every single story and they're kind of curious about them. And so we'll take a run at explaining it to them. But, you know, when we first pitched the show, we kind of told the times, like, we don't want to make a like tech 101 show. You know, we don't want to explain it to people who have no idea what this industry is all about. Uh, we're going to sort of go for these really savvy listeners. And then we just started hearing from all of these people that say, I don't care about tech at all, but like now I feel like I know a little something about AI. And so I think we've increasingly gotten into the idea of explaining things in a way that is accessible because like so many more people want to come on board this journey. But this is actually a thing that we think a lot about is like how much explanation, you know, do we need to spell out what an API is every time we talk about it? Right. How much catch up do we need to do? And and so one of the rules of the Hard Fork podcast is no fake naivete. Ah. Like we do not do the thing where like one of us is like, tell me about Bitcoin. Have you heard about Bitcoin? And the other one goes like, well, no, I haven't. Tell me about Bitcoin. So that sounds we, like made up money, Kevin. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we just decided very early on for like purely aesthetic reasons that like we just weren't going to ever do that and so i think we've actually been pretty good about like when one of us genuinely doesn't know something we'll say like no i don't know that but if we do know it because we usually we both have at least heard about stuff like we're on the same internet all week and we have essentially the same job so we just will say something like well let's just talk about this part of it and not sort of assume whether or not the other person does or doesn't know it and sometimes we'll tell each other, like, don't read about this. Like, I'm going to explain this to you. So, like, don't read about it. Like, we'll just sort of have the conversation on the show, which is fun. Do not scan your iris. Wait for the show to scan your iris. <laughs> yeah, you know, by the way, it's actually um, doing the show has made me realize why there is false naivete on so many podcasts because it is so convenient. It is like the most convenient thing in the world to just be like, no, I've never heard of Bitcoin. Tell me about it. And so it's actually a weekly challenge not to be falsely naive. I think this is actually a very important and major issue in like turning what you're interested in into a podcast. So I did a podcast for several years with uh, Jay Caspian Kang, also a former New York timer about crypto. And our original idea was we will go into this with total naivete and take people on our journey. And within like three weeks to a month, we were like really far down the rabbit hole <laughs> and no longer like guiding people through the basics, but like discussing like fairly intricate ICO scams. And it just felt right to be more sophisticated. And the metaphor was always for me, like if you want to get into sports and you start listening to like a sports podcast, they're not like a touchdown is when you throw the ball. It's worth seven points. They start talking about it with depths and they're like, catch up, motherfucker. Like, learn the lingo. It's uh, it's going to come to you if you listen to this a few times. Kevin has made the point to me that people actually like to be a little bit confused. Like they like listening to things where people are talking about things they don't quite understand, which was very counterintuitive to me. And I think a lot of like editor types would scoff at, but I've come around to his way of thinking. I mean, I just observe it in my own podcast listening. Like, I'll listen to, like, the Huberman Lab podcast, and, like, half the stuff he says, I have no idea what it means. But I kind of like that challenge. And also, like, I have a phone and Google. And so, like, <laughs> it is actually, like, there's a nice sort of sweet spot of you want to, like, you want your audience to understand most of what you're saying, but maybe not everything. I think that there's also something within that where you make a lot of jokes on the show. There's a lot of humor and sometimes the humor is actually telling you, okay, here's the factual parts and here's what like is kind of funny. Like you can like actually discern a lot from the tone of the show and what you would banter about these things. 
I mean, there there is so much absurdity in the world of tech, you know, not to return to the orb for a third time in a short conversation, <laughs> but the minute someone explains it to you, you're just saying, wait, what? what is happening? Is this really the future that we're going to live in? And I think for such a long time, and for some good reasons, tech coverage in particular has just been deadly serious, right? It has just been focused on the absolute worst possible outcomes of every single technology. And again, a lot of that is good. I've written a lot of that coverage. I will keep writing that kind of coverage. But it is just one slice of the emotional spectrum of being a human and reporting on things. And it is a joy to like once a week be able to sit down with Kevin and just say, you know what, like this is actually kind of hilarious. And in part, I think my bias toward sort of funny podcasting is derived from my last podcast, which was called Rabbit Hole, which was, I would say, like the extreme dark end of the emotional spectrum, which was all about how like the internet is turning everyone <laughs> into extremists and Nazis and QAnon. And it was not the same kind of show. It was like a highly produced eight-part narrative series. But, you know, people would um, write to me after that came out and just be like, they would be praising the show. They would be saying something like, I just listened to Rabbit Hole. I haven't been able to get off my couch for the last three hours. I've just been like staring at the wall. Like that's not actually the reaction that I want people to have to my work. I mean, sometimes, yes, you do want to be able to do that, you know, access that register too. But with this show, like our goal is always that you feel better after you listen to it than before. I think that the way that you approach it breaks what I felt like was sort of a dead end attitude about tech, which was, this is all so bad. It's going to like ruin the world. It's kind of like, okay, okay. But like, how does the world coin orb work? Like, you know, like there's a certain degree to which I think people want to sort of find what they think about something, not be told by other people. And the fact that you guys disagree about the world coin kind of helps me like understand something about these tech projects. Yeah. I mean, and, and the other nice thing about the the style of podcast that we do is that we can revisit subjects and we do, you know, it's like we can change our minds. Print pieces are so, they feel so permanent. They feel so definitive. Podcasts, like we can just sort of say like, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. You know, ask me again in a month and we can just kind of keep chasing the story. So another story was the uh, rebranding of Twitter to uh, X. Am I pronouncing that correctly? X? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> And Twitter is like really like central to how both of you ended up in the chairs you're sitting in with the microphones talking into. I think of you as journalists of the Twitter era. I think of you like when I think of who you are, I see like your Twitter avatars before I see like what publications you work for. So I think first I just want to kind of check like a little like health check, like how are you feeling about this era ending that was like really central to, to who you became? Oh, I hate it. I mean, I'm desperately trying to recreate it somewhere else. You know, <laughs> yeah. anytime a new Twitter clone is launched, it's like, okay, I'm here. Follow me here. I'm doing it over here. You know, you're absolutely right. Like Twitter has given me so much of what I have and it just filled a specific need I had as a reporter, which is I want to know what is going on at all times. I want to know what my peers are working on. I want to know how their work is being discussed. I want to know how my work is being discussed. And Twitter was just absolutely incredible for that until last fall. And then it started to disintegrate. And it actually got to a point where I was like, morally, I cannot invest any energy here. I'm going to continue to repost stuff from elsewhere here, but like, I'm done. And so I've been excited that there are some alternatives that are starting to take off. Yeah, I have a different take on this. I think like Casey is still in the kind of like, anger and bargaining stage of, of his <laughs> processing of the death of Twitter. I think I have like moved to acceptance and actually like feel okay about the sort of collapse of Twitter and the sort of the, the fact that there really isn't like a one for one replacement yet. You know, I have found Twitter very useful. It has given me so many opportunities. I would not be, you know, doing this show at the New York Times if it were not for Twitter but it also has been like very destructive to my life and my writing in ways that I think are harder to quantify and to assess. Um, you know, I just felt Twitter sort of operating on me after a while at like the molecular level, you know, like my thoughts would kind of arrive in like tweet sized snippets. And when I would write, I would just get so tripped up in like 
what are the worst people on Twitter going to say in response to this idea that I have, it became sort of fused with a kind of inner critic that I already had and just made it much stronger and more embodied. And so I have been trying to sort of like detach myself from Twitter, but also all of the things that kind of work like Twitter, just for the sake of my own life and but also the quality of my work. I really do think that like Twitter has not made the craft of journalism better. And I agree with Kevin, but I've just embraced the magical thinking of it's going to be different this time over on Threads. (laughs) I think that we're going to remember Twitter sort of like cigarettes, where it's going to be like, I don't do that anymore. It was bad. But if I catch like a whiff of it in the night air, it's going to like flash me back to something that I'm like, if I could just like mainline 2016 Twitter one more time. Yeah, I'd like to revisit those memories a little bit. Yeah, like remember when we had that good dopamine hit about the llamas and the dress? Like, (laughs) Weren't those the days? But I also think this is maybe a little bit more true of Kevin. I'm interested that you say that like it's been sort of a net negative for your writing. I I can't disagree with anyone who says Twitter is like a net negative because like it's clearly a net negative in almost all of our lives in the like 10,000 hours we poured into it. Like we could be like world-class fencers by now, probably. But um, I've always taken you for like a bit of a spicy poster, a man who could post and attract a little magnetic emotional energy back. And the most interesting thing to me about the end of Twitter is how deeply Elon Musk wants to be a poster and fails. And I don't think kind of towards the end of Twitter, I realized like that this was like something that you could desire, like maybe even desire more than a yacht to be a spicy tweeter. So I guess I'm like, what do we make of the poster era? What was the poster and what can we learn about the future from the poster? I think the poster is just a person who is good at one version of the goal of social. Like if social media is a video game, like a poster is the person who has the high score. Yes. Right. And, and, but the high score, not being like how many people respect you and think you have good ideas, but like purely like how many people notice you and are reacting to you and how are your ideas traveling through social media. And like, in that sense, I think Elon Musk is actually like, you know, one of the best posters because he understands at an intuitive level that like if he posts some boring photo of like a rocket being built in a factory, like it'll get this many likes. And if he posts that he's going to put the cocaine back in Coca-Cola, it's going to get this many likes. And so he just does more of the thing that gets the most likes. And I would put Trump and a bunch of other people into that category of like, True posters, the biggest barrier to success as a poster is shame mm. and, and self-consciousness. Because to be a true poster, to win the game, you have to like be willing to say anything that will get you attention. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. 
Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So, Casey, on a, a recent hard fork, I think you were um, maybe just entering into the bargaining thing. And you said, like, honestly, probably these other things aren't going to take off. People are moving to smaller group, WhatsApp. Basically, what was once centralized is decentralizing. And as two people who sort of talk about this culture that used to all take place in one grand public square, what does it mean if everyone like goes off and does their like weird side chats and we're not all talking about the same thing anymore? Well, the first thing is I have to post everything I do to five different places right now. And it's infuriating <laughs> and it needs to stop. Okay. <laughs> Completely exhausting. Um, look, I think that, you know, in media, things bundle and they unbundle. And Twitter was a bundling moment and we're now living through an unbundling moment. And I think we're seeing this Cambrian explosion of Twitter alternatives, but I do think they will come back together over time. I think the group chat is the social network of the moment. I also think, at least in my group chats, you know what people are still talking about? Tweets, posts, right? Things they've seen online. And so that's why I'm just so confident that this thing is going to continue to be a force, not on Twitter anymore, certainly, but in some of these other places that are cropping up. When you're putting together the show, what are your media diets? And if Twitter couldn't be in that media diet, like where do you think you will find the raw material that you discuss on the show going forward? It's such a good question, and it has been changing lately. I mean, home base for me for over a decade has been TechMeme, this incredible website that sort of tells you up to the minute what are the top stories in tech. They have human editors who are writing the headlines, do a great job of summarizing them. So that's always where I go first. Increasingly, though, I've been using this app, Artifact. Have you used Artifact yet? I have. So Artifact is this app from the Instagram co-founders, and it's kind of like a TikTok for text. It just shows you news stories, and the, depending on what stories you click on, it shows you more of those kinds of stories. But now when I'm putting my newsletter together, there's almost always at least one or two things that I got as a push notification from Artifact, right? Something about one of my beat companies. I was like, oh, it's like, I definitely didn't see that on Twitter. I didn't see that in any other newsletter. So that's become one tool that I'm using that's becoming more interesting. I'm a big Reddit guy for finding news. I feel a little like something about admitting that in public, but uh, <laughs> but but no, I think it is like a useful aggregator for at least the kind of news that I care about. I mean, Which not shower so much thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Am I the asshole? Fake, like fake, fake relationship drama. Um, no, but like, you know, less useful recently just in the past couple of weeks because of all the protests going on there. Um, but, you know, there's a, a subreddit called Futurology. It's kind of like tech stories, stuff about the future. Like right now, like, you know, people are really obsessing about this room temperature uh, superconductor thing. And so there's like a lot of discussion like going on over on Reddit. But I also use Artifact. I get a lot of newsletters. And so once or twice a day, I will just go through and read a dozen newsletters. Okay. I'm going to hit all the big ones here. About two years ago, Kevin, you published a book about AI, like one of the greatest slightly too soon uh, book launches I've ever <laughs> experienced. I literally remember the book like arriving on my desk and being like, AI, who's even talking about that? So now two years later would have been the perfect time. What did you learn from writing a book 
about AI two years too early? And what do you make of the way that AI is being covered, let's say, over the kind of like three-month boom? That's when, when did this boom start now? Like three, six months ago? I think it started in the fall when ChatGPT came out. When ChatGPT came out. Yeah. So what was it like writing about AI then? And what would have been different if you had had a slightly slower publishing schedule? Well, I mean, I think the book actually holds up decently well, given that it was published before like the entire field changed. Because it's not really about like the AI tech itself. It's like, how do we as humans cope with and respond to the fact that all these AI systems are getting really good? And and I wrote it because in part, I was hearing from all these like researchers in these labs being like, you should pay attention to this. Like things are happening and they might not become public for a while, but you actually like should write about this because it is a very important moment in computer science. So that was like part of why I, I wrote the book in the first place. And I also wish that it came out this year and not two years ago. I'm sure my publisher does too. But um, I think like it's just impossible to time these things. You know, the publication window for books is, you know, nine months to a year from when you turn in, you know, the final copy. And so it just makes it hard to write about a subject that is moving as quickly as AI is. I don't like stay up at night ruining, uh, you know, the fact that my book was a little too early. I will say it has made me more empathetic with meta and it's like all this metaverse stuff, which I think is probably 10 years too early. But I'm like, yeah, it's bad to be too late on a story, but it's also not great to be too early. Well, it could be worse, Kevin. You know, Aaron, my book on Theranos comes out next month, and I'm really worried that people are kind of sick of that story. I mean, the interesting thing is if you had a book that you were turning in right now, I would also be like, oh, timing's going to be tough. By the time this comes out, we're going to be on like, you know, 7.2, and it's going to be completely different experience than it is now. This is why I refuse to write a tech book. I cannot think of one thing, including AI, that I could tell you with even 50% certainty that anyone will care three years from now, which is like the earliest I could get a book onto a shelf. But you've both been doing this for a long time. And there's a certain way that this like, is AI going to like destroy the entire world in some sort of like a super intelligence at some point in the future? That's like, it makes it hard to have other conversations about it because that conversation is both so grave and so vague, like knowing that that's kind of like the like lowest level conversation. What is the conversation you two want to be having about AI right now? I just want to lead with curiosity. Like, I think one of the worst things about the Twitter era was that it encouraged reporters to make sure all of their conclusions were pre-digested and packaged in the headline and in the screenshot that they were going to tweet because that was the only way they knew how to get any attention for anything. That, I think, is the, actually the most corrosive legacy of the Twitter moment. Now that that's kind of fallen away, I do think there is more room to just say, I want to know about this. And I don't know actually know how to feel. Yeah. So when we have AI folks on our show, which we do a lot, some of them are extremely worried about the end of the world. And others of them are like, why so serious? You know, just relax a bit. And no one of those conversations will prove to be definitive, but my hope is that by asking the question in enough different ways of enough people over a long enough period of time, I will arrive at some sort of informed worldview, and I hope our listeners will along the way too. Yeah, and I, whenever I, because I struggle with this a lot, like I am always fascinated with like the deep existential big questions about AI, and I've like tied myself in knots trying to figure out like, is this stuff going to end the world or not? And what's always helped me is sort of pulling it closer to the ground, like actually going out and talking to people who are using this stuff in their everyday lives. One of my favorite interviews we've ever done on the podcast was with this ninth grade English teacher who was just telling us like, about how this has changed her classroom and what it's like to be a teacher in the age of ChatGPT. And like, it was not a sort of dire, you know, existential doomery take. It was like, yeah, they're cheating. But like my students have always cheated. And you know what? I'm really good at figuring out when they're cheating. And it also has all these other benefits that, you know, that are, are sort of harder to talk about. But yeah, I mean, that's what's always helped me is like grounding it in real reporting and real people and figuring out like who's using this and why. You have... You know, you have the power to have a ninth grade teacher on to talk about how they're using AI stuff, but you're also at a scale where you can have the CEO of Anthropic come on and talk about what could be one of the most consequential 
AI systems being built. When you have that sort of chance to talk to someone, um, how do you think about that? How do you connect AI to powerful people within the AI movement? And, and what are you trying to find out when you get in a room with them? I think a lot of it winds up being trying to get them on the record about some stuff, you know, trying to let them lay out a marker for what they think is going to happen, for what they think they are responsible for, for pushing them around how they're going to ensure that this stuff has a good outcome. But also, like, there's a reason why there's not a different CEO on our show every week. I don't like parade of CEO type shows. And, you know, the interview we did with the teacher was one of my favorites too. Cause like you're talking to a real person who isn't like trying to protect a corporate interest. And when you're interviewing a CEO, that's just always going to be the case. So it's something where like, look, if you're running one of the biggest AI companies in the world, then like, yes, absolutely. We want to talk to you, but like, there are going to be many weeks where we don't talk to anyone like that. And, you know, we'll probably learn more by talking to somebody else. I would agree. I, and I think our listeners have some of their favorite segments have not been the ones with the biggest names. And that has been like not intuitive to me. Cause I like, when we started the show, I was like, let's go like hunt big game. Like let's go get the biggest people in the industry. And it turns out like we have gotten some of the, you know, we had Sundar Pichai from Google. We had Sam Altman. Like we've had people in the world who are, who are very important, but those like, those aren't necessarily the episodes that we get the most positive feedback about people listen to podcasts for many reasons. Sometimes it's to hear someone, a newsmaker, you know, breaking news or saying something interesting. And sometimes it's just to like have a good time and listen to two people talk to each other about stuff that they find interesting. What is the fact that you're doing this within the New York times organization mean? Like, is there sort of different bumpers on the podcast than there would be if you guys were just uploading this on the fly? Speaking as somebody who does not, you know, work as a full-time employee of the New York Times, I I've been just delighted by how few of those bumpers there are. I mean, we we truly are making the show that we want to make. The thing I would say about Times is just they have given us access to a world that like I certainly did not have by myself. We have incredible producers. We have amazing composers. Like the music some weeks is my favorite part of the show. And then because it's the New York Times, when you start a podcast, they're like, people will take a chance on it. And that was just, again, something that like I would not have had access to Otherwise, super boring answer, but like they couldn't have been more supportive and they send us so many nice notes about the show. So I, you know, again, if somebody doesn't work there, I'm like very appreciative of them. Yeah, I think everything that Casey said is true. And I think just it's an underrated advantage to be like connected to a newsroom where people are just constantly putting out new and interesting reporting and we can just slack those people or call them and be like, hey, could you just like come on the show you know, on 12 hours notice or something. And like, that's a, a sort of unfair advantage that I feel like we have relative to like, you know, other tech podcasts that aren't connected to huge newsrooms with large desks of people covering this stuff. What I'm about to say is just my take. It's not criticism at all of anyone. But um, if I had filed this podcast in the New York Times sections, I think of it as kind of an opinion podcast like it's in a tone that you'd find an opinion and i find myself really not liking print opinion i find that print opinion is often where people get the most confused about like oh they said this in the new york times i'm like well the new york times didn't really say that that's like a guest opinion column by someone who works at a nonprofit that is on this issue but I really, really like the opinion tone when it's two people hanging out talking. And I wonder if you could like talk about the difference, like how tone plays differently in print versus a podcast environment and how you sort of think about like what the tone of the show is there. Like, and also like your own like chemistry. Did you guys have to work on sort of like how far can these jokes go? <laughs> Hmm. I mean, I think this is like such a, a like narrow answer that I think people who work in newsrooms might not buy. But in, in journalism, we do have this distinction between opinion and analysis, right? And I think the big difference is analysis is based on reporting. 
you have made phone calls and you're sharing something. And yeah, it feels opinionated, but it is rooted in something. We are not making a show that is a punditry. I probably stray across that line a little bit more. You know, my journalism has always, since I started writing about tech, mixed in some opinion with analysis with some reporting. You know, Kevin is a reporter who reports. But I think it's okay if you share conclusions from what you've reported. Yeah, and I like listening to those kind of podcasts too. I think a podcast where we just read out what we had reported on that week would be very boring and unsatisfying for listeners. Like they want to know who we are, what we think and what about us led us to those conclusions. And so I don't know like what the news opinion binary is anymore. Um, I mean, obviously like it's an important organizational distinction that like the newsroom and the opinion section are separate at the New York times and other publications you know, one thing that I've often found, and this is true, I think, in sort of no matter where in the newspaper you are, it's very hard to be informal in print, at the New York Times, at least. Because just like the fact that it's appearing in the font on the web page of the New York Times, or like in the app, like, it just always feels like you're wearing a suit, you know, <laughs> and like, no matter what you're saying, even if you're trying to write something like funny, or a little bit like lowbrow or something like it's just always going to feel a little bit elevated because it's in the New York Times, which is great if what you're trying to do is like convey a, an important idea or a thought. It's less good for like just shooting the shit. And so I found that the podcast is much a better venue for that kind of informality. I have always thought about this a way where if you're listening to a podcast I did and it's like 47 minutes in, it's like, hey, you came to this party. You knew exactly what you were getting into. Whereas you could see like a paragraph from a New York Times opinion print piece, like quoted somewhere else, like someone mad about it on Twitter. And there's like a screen grab of it. It could come to you with any possible context. And therefore it has to be sort of narrow. Whereas by the time I've been, you know, like rambling for an hour, I feel like you kind of opted in to like, how I'm presenting things. And like, if you're confused, I'm like confused as to how you got confused. I mean, podcasts buy you so much goodwill. Many readers do not even pay attention to the bylines. And so any feelings that they have that are negative, just go to the institution. When you're podcasting, if you've been listening to the podcast for six months and one of the hosts says something that lightly offends you, I think you're more likely to be like, well, he's basically a good guy. You know, like I disagree with him about that, but like the bulk of things, I'm basically on the same page. And that's just not a luxury that is afforded to you as a print writer. I remember, I don't remember this was when this was Kevin, but you wrote something about crypto. Like maybe it was about pudgy penguins, I think. And a bunch of people on Twitter were very mad about it. They were like, you shouldn't have platformed the pudgy penguins. <laughs> like you're giving bad investment advice. But I think like if you did like a segment on hard fork in the like third slot and made a bunch of jokes about the pudgy penguins, like no one's blinking. Like, I guess my question would be like, how do you deal with like other people's perception of like what you should cover and what is the acceptable range of topics for a New York Times reporter to be reporting on. You know, you're recalling this Pudgy Penguins thing almost correctly, but you're missing the the most insane, like, notch up thing that happened, which was that the Bored Apes, which was this other NFT club, came up with this conspiracy theory that I was not actually a journalist at the New York Times. Oh, yes. Um, that I was a secret Pudgy Penguins booster who had, like, assumed the identity who had stolen the Twitter account of Kevin Roos of the New York Times and was using it to pump the bags of the pudgy penguins. Oh, for a minute, I thought you meant that they were accusing you of playing the long game where you had like built up an entire <laughs> journalism career so you could be there at the right point in time to push the penguins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is um, story selection is something that we think a lot about in the podcast and like the sort of difference in how people interpret it. But it's very easy for me to tell when a podcast host actually cares about the thing that they're talking about. Yes. You know, is is not just like running down a list of like things that happened that week and filling time on their show. It is like something that I've become extremely attuned to. And so I think when we're thinking about what stories we cover, it's like there are sometimes weeks where it's like, oh, we probably should talk about this topic because it is like objectively important. But then we get into the meeting and we start talking about it and we're like, 
Neither of us cares about this. So we don't talk about it. And that's like a luxury that we have. Whereas like, if you are the New York Times and something boring but important happens, you cover it because that is like what you do. I just also would add that like, I am sensitive to questions around like, who are you giving your platform to? And I think there are definitely people that I would not want to have on the show. But I also want to recognize that when people are saying that sort of thing to you, particularly in a forum like Twitter, it is a kind of activism, right? It's a kind of gatekeeping is like, let's just sort of keep these certain people out of the conversation, even if they're already central to the conversation, right? Like you got to lead with your curiosity about the world. And I just think you want to be really careful about who you're just going to say, like, we're never going to talk to that person. So tune in next week for our long form interview with RFK Jr. He's very complicated. He's a complicated man and and, and quite misunderstood. <laughs> so you guys would have a penguin on the show. if they... <laughs> <laughs> we've, been, we've been dying down a penguin on the show. Casey, you like, I think platformer is unusual in that it's a, one person venture newsletter that has scoops and does original reporting. There's not a lot of people crossing those streams for both logistical and professional reasons. And it's pretty hard. And there was a period of time where it felt like a lot of it was you being deeply sourced in Facebook and the broader Fang umbrella and people who worked at these companies like telling you what was really happening in the companies and you reporting on it. And it feels like we're maybe at the twilight of the like Facebook leak, um, at least until like 10 years when the, the metaverse is finally ready. Where does that leave you in this operation? And where do you see taking the reporting if something like Facebook isn't as central to the conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, the number one thing I've learned since starting Platformer is that the thing that people will pay you to read about is companies in crisis. So like, if you look at the biggest spikes in Platformer revenue, it was like writing about a crisis at Facebook, writing about a crisis at Medium, at Basecamp, and then Twitter came along. And I hired an amazing colleague last year, Zoe Schiffer, who helped me break a lot of stories about Twitter. But the sort of more insane that things got inside that company, to the extent that we could tell you about them, there was money to be made, right? So, you know, on one hand, I don't want to be the sort of reporter that's always poking around at every company, just being like, hey, like, is there like a secret crisis there that you want to tell me about? But I do want to be attuned to those moments of like, you know, OpenAI is becoming a really important company. How many people do I know over there? How many people do I know over there that would kind of give me a steer and say like, you know what, we're doing this thing that I don't feel great about, right? And I think you just want to start building those relationships. The thing I love about writing a newsletter is I have three chances a week to write about a company if I want to. So I can get pretty up to speed on something in a hurry. But um, I'm sort of between crises right now. I mean, you know, Twitter is, is a perpetual crisis, but there's nothing I could tell you about Twitter that you wouldn't have already guessed. And so it's like, we're just sort of a little bit between things. And it's sort of up to me to find something interesting to tell you three times a week. And that's the like fun and the terror and the horror of the job. It seems like with these AI companies, like if the long-term goal is to be reporting on like crises at AI companies, there's this weird level where people within them don't totally know what's going on. Potentially like the engineers are unaware. And instead of like something like Facebook, that's a little bit more like straightforward where it's like, this is a secret. We all know it, but we don't want reporters to know it. They're like, Oh, we don't really know what's going on. Like we might be listening to media about AI to better understand it because we're sort of on the same journey you are. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's one reason why I want to start a podcast. I wanted to reach people in a different way. My newsletter is very serious. It often does leave people feeling worse about things. And that attracts a certain kind of person to the audience. There are also people that want to have a laugh at the end of the week and, you know, hear a couple of friends talk and like a podcast lets us do that. And my hope is that over time, more of those people will leak me insanely sensitive materials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can send those over to Casey at kevin.roos at <laughs> Kevin, how about you? Like, you're a columnist, but you do like reporting at the New York Times. Like, what are you interested in writing about right now? What makes sense to you to do as a story and not as a podcast segment? You know, 
I think ideally they sort of feed into each other. And that's what I've been trying to experiment with more recently. Like today we had this episode go up about, which had a segment about, we took a field trip to the robotics lab at Google. And I also wrote a column that published concurrently with the episode where it was like, here's a little bit more detail and a little bit more analysis of like what's going on inside the Google robotics lab that we couldn't put into the episode. I'm trying it out and seeing if that works. You know, there's certain ideas that I'll have that I'm like, oh, that's a column or that's a podcast uh, segment. And I don't quite have like a good, you know, algorithm for that, except it's just kind of like my gut. I do like the sort of ability to range between the two because they're good for different things. Casey, to something that you said earlier, like I think you are actually like kind of a unicorn in this respect where like you can be of like a very serious, like hard ass reporter, but you're also extremely funny. And like, that's something that I've always like wanted to sort of capture about you. And like, I've always wanted your newsletter to be like funnier because I knew that you were so funny from just being your friend. And so I'm so glad that we've like created this thing that allows people to say like, oh, Casey's like more than just like the guy who always knows what's going on inside Twitter. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. I, you know, for what it's worth, like I occasionally I do try to be funny in the column and it's always just kind of like, I can only be so funny about this column about Facebook and its effect on democracy, right? Like the people are not paying me for the giggles, you know, it's like, how is this affecting the voting population of this country? So, so that's always been the tension, but you know, to Kevin's point, it's like you put a podcast together and it's like, you know, we talk about that story and maybe that's not the funny story of the week, but like, then we'll go play with some robots and that'll be funny. All right. I need to ask like a kind of stupid nuts and bolts question. So you get started doing audio in the way we're doing audio, which is we're all sitting on a window on each other's computer talking about stuff. And then someone says, hey, you can go in the Google Robotics Lab. Awesome. Great opportunity. Not really an audio kind of environment, kind of a like, hey, look at all those robots. They are so cool. If you could see them, you'd be like really into it. What is the learning curve of like um, being able to do a kind of a audio segment and audio story? How do you turn that opportunity into something that you can put on the show? I mean, we don't, the producers do, you know, it was like, like we have, I mean, Kevin actually is like more technically adept at the, the audio engineering um, than I am. I, I still know basically nothing, but you know, from that particular case, our producer Davis land came with us. He had the microphones. It was his job to mix the, like, I don't know, five different channels of audio that he had into something that was usable. And had it just been Kevin and I, I dare say it would not have sounded that good and maybe not have even been usable. I almost did ruin an interview once with Sam Altman at this Microsoft event because I like didn't plug the mics in all the way to like the recorder. So uh, yeah, I, I basically said like, I should never be allowed to do that again. But one thing I will say about audio, even the people that, that know the most about audio, if they're like with you in the room and you're getting ready to record an episode, they're still frowning at something. Something is not working the way that it's supposed to, and it needs to be adjusted and it needs to be restarted and rebooted. So this is an unsolved problem and hopefully the AI will help us out with that. Yeah. But one other thing about nuts and bolts is that like, we've actually found that it's really important for us to be as much as we can in the same room. Right. So one of our sort of hypotheses early on was that the show would just be better if we were literally sitting next to each other in a room recording it, because there'd be so much more like crosstalk and just interjections. And like, I I kind of developed this allergy during COVID to like Zoom podcasts, because they just kind of sounded like a series of monologues to me. It was like one person talks for two and a half minutes, and then they take a breath, and the other person talks for two and a half minutes, and then they take a breath. And so, you know, we're getting better at because we've had to do some remote recording just because of travel and stuff. But I still think there's like nothing like the experience of just being literally yeah, in the room. I agree. I hate, I hate remote recording. Every time we get into a room together, it feels like what we're actually trying to do, which is hang out with each other and talk about stuff. When you're doing it, Zoom, you just feel like you're in a meeting for your job. Like, how do you balance, like, especially knowing like, oh, we want to be in the same room on the same day, not out reporting that day, not doing other things in our job. Like, I guess, how do you limit how much you can or can't put into this show versus the other obligations you have in your life. I mean, what I tried to do was to contain the entire production process that would involve me to one day a week. So I used to write four newsletters a week. When we started the podcast, I went down to three. The day that I don't write anymore is Wednesday. We record the podcast on Wednesdays. And so, you know, I'm fully available on Wednesday. The Google segment, we recorded an episode, then we went down to Google, and then that segment wound up running a week later. And like, I love that sort of thing. When it spills into other days, it does get challenging because I'm writing a new newsletter but um 
it's basically worked out pretty great, I have to say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think that like covers most of what I wanted to talk about. Is there anything we missed that uh, is fascinating? Well, we we were conscious that we were talking to you, Aaron, a, a certified crypto head, and uh, <laughs> so one thing that we you know may disclose is that this was actually supposed to be a crypto podcast when we started it. Oh um, wow! So you guys pivoted. Yeah, we, we changed ideas because in the time between when we pitched it and when we actually got approval to do it, the entire crypto market crashed. And it was like, oh, maybe this is not going to sustain an ongoing podcast. So our original plan was to do a crypto podcast. What would have it been like as a crypto podcast? Same tone, but just all crypto? Yes. And like, I mean, but what's so interesting is AI almost replaced crypto in a like one for one swap where like we thought, okay, hey, if the entire internet is going to be rebuilt on crypto, there will be a lot for us to talk about. Some will be serious and bad. Some of it will be funny and cool. Let's just go talk about it. And then the crypto market collapsed. And, you know, so like when you started the show, we were talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and, you know, SBF and FTX and kind of the story of the week. And then AI comes along and it's like, oh, maybe AI is actually the thing that changes everything. And we can sort of go down that road. And the one question I just keep asking myself is what would we have called the show if we knew it was going to be about AI and not crypto? Because <laughs> Hardfork <laughs> is just such a crypto name. Yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I have so many thoughts on what you just opened up that I could do a whole nother hour. I'll just summarize. Like I would go to somewhere about are AI and crypto actually different? Did we need to have a money that the machines could trade with each other for the true takeover to happen? Lots of rich topics there. At what point did you realize it can't all be about crypto? Did someone just say it like in that kind of, I want a divorce kind of way? The people at the times, in what was frankly a very helpful way, as we were sort of ramping up production, they would just sort of say very gently, does the show have to be all about crypto? (laughs) Like... Seems like there's some other things going on. Is it where there maybe be room? And, you know, we, frankly, we pitched it as a crypto show because it, it, it was a reason for them to let us do the show. They did not have a crypto show. At the time, they had a tech show. So they sort of had other things in the mix. And then, you know, a bunch of things changed and it just made sense to do a, a more broad set of topics. I mean, the moment where it clicked for me, actually, uh, and I don't think I've shared this with you, Casey, yet, but we did some pilots before we actually made our first like episodes that went on the feed. And one of them was this story that I just thought was like totally weird. It was this thing about Loab and Krungus. Do you oh, yeah. This, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So there was, this, there was this thing that happened in, I guess, the summer of 2022, which was that these image generating AIs came out, Midjourney and Dolly and Stable Diffusion. And people started playing around with them. And someone on Twitter had discovered this property. You could do what's called negative prompting, where you would say, like, instead of draw me, you know, a dinosaur riding a bicycle, you could say draw the opposite of a dinosaur riding a bicycle. And the AI would just sort of like go into its neural network and like pull out the thing that it was statistically that was least like the thing that you asked for. And so people started playing around with this and finding that like a lot of these negative prompts seem to converge on this like demon uh, named, <laughs> named Loab, who just seemed to be like kind of all over the model. This like same face of this like demonic character would appear and they called it Loab. And so we did like this weird pilot segment where I was just like trying to explain and make sense of the Loab. And then there was another one called Krungus. And, um, and I was just like, this is so much weirder and more fun than anything happening in crypto. I think that remains like one of my favorite segments that we've ever taped and it will never see the light of day. It was like a moment where I was like, oh, this is just fucking weird and funny. And we like, if we could find one of these every week or even every other week, like that is a, a great podcast. Yeah. And just like the perfect mixture of like, this is scary and funny at the same time. And it's probably the future. And that I think just wound up being a zone that we are in love with. Yeah. I, I always feel like, if I was trying to describe the ideal topic and tone for like a podcast chat, it's kind of like dorm bong conversation, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's gotta be about something everyone knows about, but it's also gotta be like a AI, like hallucinations. Like you get someone talking about it. You can learn all about them. I had like a similar thing when I did like a podcast about someone who might have faked their death where I'm like, if you ask someone what they would do if they faked their death, you can learn 
a lot about them. If you talk to people about Loeb and what they think about these sort of hallucination-like properties of AI, it's like an open door rather than like a narrowing hallway in terms of the the forks that come off it. Mm, well, we the love hard forks, forks yeah. The hard forks. <laughs> Aaron, do you have a, a full plan to fake your own death? Like, how thoroughly have you thought through this? Well, um, not only have I talked a bunch about it, but when I did that podcast, I had a guy who's like an expert in death faking. He's a private investigator. <laughs> and he is always trying to get me to produce a podcast with him about death faking. So he, I guess he used to have like a, like a cable show kind of about this in some era when there was, you know, like 900 cable channels and they had like a hotline where you could call. And if you wanted to like come in from the cold and like unfake your death. And apparently multiple people like came back in this manner. I do think a death faking pod has legs, but it's harder now because it's like harder to fake your death. In like the 70s, you could just like fake your death for a couple of years and just come back. It wasn't really that big a deal. Okay, wow. first of all, this would definitely be a podcast. That's an incredible <laughs> yeah. idea. Like it would print money. Like, oh my God. And second, you know, I, I do want to look into this more because I have a story due next week that I'm trying to get out of. So very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Casey disappears, uh, I would love to discuss crypto with you on any uh, any future podcast, Gavin. Uh, I, I'm kind of glad you guys didn't do the crypto lane because I would have just been like, no, that's what the podcast I wanted to make. And instead, you've packaged it with some AI content that I can laugh about it. So I really appreciate uh, what you guys are up to. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. That was the Longform Podcast. Thanks to Kevin and Casey. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Susan Peterson for editing this show. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.